0: Dr. Amalia Ghanias-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socio-economic class division, and gender-based violence. In recognition of International Women's Day, which is celebrated annually on the 8th of March, today's series takes us around the world to hear the voices of international women, ambassadors, and high commissioners from different countries who have featured on Womanity in the past. The theme for International Women's Day this year is Women in Leadership, Achieving an Equal Future in a COVID-19 World. Joining us now is the ambassador of Turkey to South Africa, Iswatini and Lesotho, Elif Ulgen. Ambassador, welcome to the show. It's so lovely to see you again.
1: The same here, dear Ramale. It's always a privilege and a big pleasure to join you on your wonderful talks. Thank you.
0: I was reflecting earlier today that two years ago we had this wonderful gathering at your residence with women ambassadors, high commissioners from across the globe reflecting on International Women's Day. A very different environment.
1: That's true. I was also thinking of the same uh, moments. <laughs> Hopefully we will have them repeated.
0: <laughs> so with that in mind, what are some of your views regarding this year's theme for International Women's Day? Um... Actually, I'm. By, I was
1: very happy when I received your wonderful email, which was explaining your your aim in organizing these series of webinars with with women ambassadors and women leaders of South Africa. And there are so many of us. <laughs> uh, but I think achieving an equal future in a COVID nineteen world, which was already chosen by the by the United Nations as the theme of of, of this year's uh, Women's Day uh, and. The indeed a women's month Uh, and i know in south africa you are never short of uh, commemorating and celebrating issues that relates to women's i think it's very very valid because we have all been now more than a year uh, dealing with this pandemic and uh, we read and learn and suffer ourselves that women in communities all around the world, let them be developed, underdeveloped, well-educated, least educated, but women had a specific suffering when compared to the rest of the other community members. They suffered more economically, they suffered more from a violence perspective, they suffered more in terms of the, the, the feelings that a woman has inside to bring up a safer, healthier, better future, bringing up Their children, the the youngsters in the community, all the values that as we share as women, or just you know providing safe and secure food and water and sanitage for the for for our families and for our beloved ones, even that feeling that we can't do it anymore, or we are facing this much of challenges, I think made women more and more depressed. So I found it very very relevant to talk about really this year of how this whole women issues have taken another very vile dimension in face of COVID-19. Obviously, South Africa and Turkey are not, you know, uh, saved from this very unfortunate drama of COVID. But yeah, uh, I was thinking all of these themes during this, uh, these days, particularly when we are approaching Women's Day globally.
0: In thinking about Women's Day globally and the fact that it is, well, it's not a United Nations event, but United Nations women most certainly has a strong footprint and impact on the way that it unites people together over a particular theme. Over the years, there's been various international instruments which promote gender equality, be it things like the Convention on Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, And some governments, rather some countries, have established ministries and departments which are purely dedicated to women's issues. And although I absolutely support these initiatives because it it gives a focus point on women, I can't help thinking that unless men are involved in gender equality, it's only seen as a woman's problem and not society's problem. What are your thoughts? Amalaya, I can't agree
1: more with you. Indeed, I would also like to add, not only that men starts to take it as serious as as we, or or those people who really write and read about women's rights, but also I find a specific role for mothers. It's the mothers who bring up the men, who in many cases turn life, a good life into a misery, a heaven into a hell in a woman's life. And these women can be their partners, their wives, their daughters, their um, uh, lovers. It doesn't matter, but those men, they are brought by women as well. And I think the drama lies here, especially in traditional communities, and my country is not uh, an exception, and I see this also in South Africa where tradition has a very, I would say, guiding, influencing in good and sometimes in bad senses, uh, influence on the bringing up of the communities. We see throughout this je- traditional norms, sometimes even mothers bring up their younger sons with a different perspective than their daughters. And this creates the first discrimination. Even when a daughter and a son is given birth, this discrimination starts. And I think the danger lies very much there. So we have to really go back as as the very, very early ages of bringing up our children, that the ideology of that we are equals should also be in the minds of the mothers. And then of course, with that mother, you know, letting their children grow up with that intention that you are equal with your sister, you are equal with the other sex. When you go to school, when you sit at the dinner table, when you go outside, you are always equals. I think that would really create the biggest difference. But again, um, reading out uh, about uh, this gender, particularly, maybe we should just quickly touch the gender-based violence issue, which... So adorably, the president of your republic, uh, President Ramaphosa, had put forth during the very harsh days of the pandemic, I think it was last year in June or so, in one of his speeches, he said that this country, South Africa, is fighting two pandemics at a time. One is the COVID and the other one is the gender-based violence. And of course, I can just take this from many countries around the world, including Turkey. I think this should be maybe the year where we also learn and teach not only the fight against COVID, but equally the fight against gender-based violence. In many countries, COVID has unfortunately brought more into the surface how wildly gender-based violence is affecting our everyday lives and how miserably women suffer because of gender-based violence. But again, I'm still believing that we have to take it back. It is the responsibility of men more than women. It's the responsibility of families particularly of mothers, to fight uh, against this phenomenal uh, phenomenon. And, um, yeah, it is a societal problem. It's a global problem. We cannot eradicate it, but at least we can reduce it because um, human nature has everything in itself, has the good and the bad, has the wild and has the peace, has the love and has, has the hate inside. But, of course, and then we have to have introduced the measures. Also in Turkey, just like in South Africa, and I very much welcome the legislative work that was immediately submitted to the South African Parliament uh, during the lockdown days, and I really look forward to that piece of legislation to come into force. Uh, also in Turkey, we have we have been introducing new pieces of legislation. We have we are one of those countries where, like South Africa, where we have ministries, ministers, uh, bureaucratic institutions to protect women, to fight against gender-based violence, to promote women's rights uh, but we are not there at a, at a perfect situation there and unfortunately we can also see and let me again give the example of South Africa which is so impressive when on paper you look at a parliament which is half occupied by women when you look at a government which is almost 50 percent consisting of women but when you look at the problems of women in this country they're not reduced even one-fourth of the population that represents the nation at those highest levels.
0: (laughs) When you talk about that point, what it it stands out for me is you can have legislation, you can have government representation, but unless instruments are acted upon by the people, because it is the people who are going to be driving the change. And when I was listening to you, you really expressed the power of women She's got the power on how she raises her children. Those children are going to go out into society. Those children are going to have children of their own. So I listen to you and I really, it underscores the power of a woman. Exactly. We are the most powerful living
1: creatures on earth. There is no doubt about this, women. Uh, And I think we are also gifted by God Almighty, because we have got so really natural powers, instinctive powers, and also we are very, we are survivors, if you look at the history of women, and I don't want to, of course, discriminate against men, I'm the mother of three sons, but this also helps me to witness firsthand how powerful we are, (laughs) by nature, so couldn't agree more with you, dear Amalaya. On that point about
0: women, Please, can you use this platform to share some of the development of of women in Turkey? Thank you.
1: As I just said, it is an ongoing effort. And I don't think any country is free of that effort, including even countries like New Zealand and Australia who are the you know, uprunners in this women's right. Uh, everybody has something to do and this is an everyday ongoing effort. And Turkey has its share. Of course, we are also a country of 80 million people, mostly younger population, very similar to the population outlook of South Africa. And we have our own challenges that come also partly because of of our traditional living styles, because of the family values. Family values can sometimes be very protective for the women and promote women's rights, but they can equally also be harmful sometimes. So we always need a protection by the government, by the state, by the legal uh, system that really gives equal rights when a problem is being faced by a man and a woman. So in the recent years Turkey had been constantly um, improving its legislation and uh, Turkey is also party to all, I can say proudly, uh, international instruments that protect that are there for the protection of women's rights, to uphold women's rights. Uh, But as we just said, um, being party to them and even having the legislation sometimes cannot help, but it is of course one of the basic steps that a government should do. We have ministries, we have bureaucratic structures, we have legal structures, and we have a very strong civil society also to extend the the arm mm, to, to Turkish women. However, in the recent years, we are now facing another phenomenon which phenomenon, which is the, the, the murder of Turkish women. I mean, this goes beyond violence against Turkish women. But even on these cases, there is a very, very high awareness, which combines every segment of the society from the most uh, conservative to the most liberal. And that's why uh, there is, of course, a constant struggle to do better, to fight better, and to put measures that would really protect women, uh, Automatically, and and I'm very proud to witness that. Coming back on the on the women heritage in Turkey, I'm also proud of our history, like as South Africa should be proud, because going almost um, hundred years ago, uh, into the days of our national struggle led by our national leader Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, and that was a struggle from and the collapse of the empire, the Ottoman Empire, to build a modern nation state. In that struggle, women took uh, equal role with the men. They went to the front. They fought with the Turkish army. They fought for their land. They fought for their rights. They fought for their men, for their husbands, for their uh, sons, for their brothers. And it was, a, it was a joint struggle. And we were very lucky that we had also been awarded. I mean, I don't, I don't want to use the word awarded, but we were, we were given the rights equally with men in, uh, in one of our first constitutions as early as 1930s, where even countries like Switzerland and in France and in England, the right, for example, to elect and be elected as a woman uh, Turkey is is one of the first countries in Europe to claim that right for its own women, and that's why all through our national history we have very strong women in politics. We have strong women in we have strong women lawyers as early as 1930s. We have women doctors, pharmacists in every sphere of life. We had uh, women figures. We have jet, jet pilots. The first jet pilot of Europe of NATO. Of the military alliance was a Turkish jet pilot and I I just recently learned this again and I was so embarrassed that I didn't knew it earlier. Coming back to the career for example today I can proudly say that our figures in the foreign ministry as women diplomats are almost uh, as good as the Nordic countries and of course when it comes to women rights, I think we should all be comparing ourselves with with those wonderful Nordic countries which do very well in protecting women's rights. So uh, the Turkish Foreign Ministry is one of the few foreign ministries in the world where the population of female diplomats and not only secretaries or officers, but I'm saying career diplomats are more than uh, almost uh, two-fifths of the the whole population. And as ambassadors, we are currently uh, out of 200 ambassadors, we have 55 currently serving in the system. And out of these 55 ambassadors, we have, I think, 13 or 14 female ambassadors only in Africa, whereas we have 44 embassies in the African continent. So the figures are very encouraging. I believe as I go back to the first sentence, this is an ongoing effort, and it's a grassroots effort as well. Mm -hmm. Unless your people, your own women in the country, they fight for their rights, they just stand up and shout for themselves, actually not many people can help you.
0: And lastly, Ambassador, please give us a few words that you'd like to share for International Women's Day. Oh,
1: believe in your own strengths. We are so strong.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. As always, a pleasure having you on the show.
1: Thank you very much, Amelia, and happy Women's Day. And I would like to also rephrase the wonderful South African saying, you hit, you hit a woman, you hit a rock. I love this one. And we have a similar saying also in Turkey. That maybe we should end on this note.
0: And what is the saying in Turkey?
1: Kadınlar dağ gibidir. It means a woman is like a mountain. You know, you can't, you can't just go through a mountain. So we are as strong as a mountain. You hit a rock, you hit a woman.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much again. That was Ambassador Elif Ulgen, the ambassador of Turkey to South Africa, Iswatini and Lesotho. Hi, I'm Zonke Digana, a South African Afro-soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Joining us next is the ambassador of Norway, Dr. Astrid Heller, who is the ambassador to South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Botswana, Madagascar, as well as Lesotho. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us today in our special on International Women's Day. Interestingly, we just had a conversation with the Turkish ambassador Elif Ogun, and she ended the conversation talking about gender equality from the perspective of her country but emphasizing how well the Nordics do, and um, I think that given our celebration of International Women's Day and gender equality as being very, very much a paramount theme, that we must pass credit to the Nordics and Norway for for your achievements.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Amalaya. and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it a lot. I think. When it comes to the Nordic countries, it's a testimony that it's not only about women leadership today, but it's about societies that have developed social equality and reduced inequality for 100 years. So it was through societies at that time led by men and even before women got voting rights that we started to have trade unions and legislations to reduce the oppression of the majority uh, of people by a minority. And it demonstrates
0: almost how long it takes for societies to to change over time. But bearing in mind the the positivity and the uh, almost, I'd say the leadership qualities that have happened and occurred in the region, we know that during the pandemic of COVID-19, some female leaders have led their nations, brilliantly. How do you think that having female leadership contributes to achieving gender equality? Yes, thank you very much. It it has been very interesting to uh,
2: follow the debates on why countries with female leaders seem to be able to uh, fight the pandemic better. Examples have been mentioned by, uh, when it comes to Germany, uh, New Zealand, uh, the Nordic countries, and. uh, a few others. Uh, so uh, I think, first of all, we must have some humility because we don't have the end of the pandemic yet. But I think it's it goes both ways that there are women leaders who have maybe certain characteristics in common, but also that the kind of societies who choose women leaders are maybe a kind of societies that are better equipped to fight a pandemic. Societies, there again with less inequality, with free education, with free health for all, uh, not because you got money from the sky, but because you have a fair taxation system where those who can contribute to do so uh, and everybody can enjoy a minimum of a welfare state. So I just wanted to to lay that foundation first and then we can add a certain number of uh, qualities uh, that I think we have been more aware of. First, we uh, fought for women's rights uh, and uh, gender equality from a human rights perspective, which I think is very legitimate. Uh, Then I think that we found out that both uh, politically, economically, in society, there was a great advantage of having gender equality. So after that first period of uh, fighting for women's rights from a human rights perspective, there was an additional recognition that there was a value of having women leaders uh, and we leaders in their own lives or of companies or of countries and so there seemed to be a certain number of qualities that women leaders have for a long time uh, there was a feeling that in order to lead you needed to look what the men do and then do the same then you could lead too but if you look closer to it you can see that many men Uh, leaders are not very well uh, performing it's not that they have made so fantastic societies Uh, also that they are so great role models so now i think also we have come to a phase where we can recognize some values that women have been taking to the table both politically and and in companies one of them is it's hard to be general when it comes to gender difference uh, but just uh, a few of them one is to be a bit humble in the sense that you don't take your conclusions for granted. You don't take yourself to be above good advice. You build on inclusivity. Uh, so that I think it's, it's a good thing. And it has proven also in uh, companies. Women are uh, very often seen to be less self-centered than men. So it's not me and my career and look at me, how great I am. But it is to be centered around the task that you are performing. And your success is measured in the success of your country or your economy or uh, your family. So less self-centered. And then, in my view, it's also the ability to uh, lead by example and lead through transforming a society by convincing people. Not by forcing, not by showing that you are the strongest, that you can oppress and that you can command. But to convince people, dialogue with people, explain to people and show empathy. Understand that they experience hardship. Uh, Prime Minister uh, Arna Suleberg of Norway, early in the pandemic, she invited to a press conference only for children where she wanted to have a dialogue with them because they understood this uh, pandemic. They understood that their freedoms is changing and they were very concerned. So it's something that was building from the whole society, the understanding of what are we going through and what do we all need to do uh, in order to to protect the most vulnerable uh, among us.
0: Can you please use this platform to reflect for a moment on a couple of women, which I know would be hard to narrow down, from a a Norwegian perspective who have been important figures? Well, I
2: can uh, say uh, uh, there is one evident in Norway. Her name is Gro Harlem Brundtland. She was the first uh, woman prime minister in Norway. Uh, She was uh, three times prime minister and she was also head of the World Health Organization after that. Uh, and very early, in the, already in the 70s, she led a commission that laid the foundation on the concept of sustainable development. Uh, so how do you both have economic growth without destroying the planet? Uh, so she was a very important role model. And I would say not only because of being a leader, but the way she was a leader. She was also a, a mother of four children. Uh, She had a great empathy and she had a great understanding of the situation of people in the world and in Norway. So a great solidarity with those in need. I think uh, this is very important also that she was not a woman trying to be a man. The current prime minister, I think, is a very important role model also. She is prime minister for the second time. The first one, she was head of the Labour Party. The current, she is head of the Conservative Party. Uh, She started at school in very difficult uh, conditions because she has a very strong dyslexia. But she then developed other qualities, uh, including a fantastic memory and oral communication skills. Uh, So she showed also that you can get over difficulties that you face early in life. And she was very much remarked in Norway when she became prime minister for the first time and some journalists wanted to visit her at home and it was very chaotic and she had also small children and she and and she said okay this is how it is in my home but what i do is i'm a politician so you focus a bit away from what they do in the private life and the shoes that you're having and the dress you're having and listening to what they have to say Uh, so they also i think it's a role model in the sense that you can be whatever you want as a private person and you can uh, dress as you want and be at home as you want and then you are a politician for being a politician. So I think also they're leading by uh, example, in a sense, uh, of letting women define themselves and not being defined by a model. Also, Angela Merkel is fantastic in that regard. Uh, she has been an extraordinary role model also for, uh, for women. I just want to mention also in Norway the case, not somebody who is not a women leader, but there are very many women who are impressive because they overwin hardship and they uh, overcome difficulties in their lives and in their society. That's an author of uh, Somali origin, who is then also now Norwegian, who came as a refugee. And she is author of a number of books, and she has uh, put focus also on the social control that takes place in uh, some migrant communities. Uh, And she's a very open and vocal uh, lesbian. Uh, So I think also it's very important that role models uh, come from a variety of uh, parts of society and not only as
0: political leaders. Listening to what you've said and, and the women that you've shared their examples and a little bit of a narrative into their backgrounds, it seems that in the Norwegian context that people have got the freedom to be who they are and to live out whatever frame of their identity they choose to at the time that they're not boxed into one particular stereotype. Yes, I, I think also
2: maybe a society with a greater gender equality, it becomes a society where you will not necessarily blur the lines about what are men's uh, qualities and women's quality as many fair, but it will much more be determined on the individuals What are my qualities as individuals? And that can be for men a liberating factor, uh, and it can be so for women also. And hopefully it will also be a society where you do not define people by the color of their skin, by their disability, you don't define people by their sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, So in that sense, I have never understood people who can be feminists, but they are racists. And I can never understand somebody who is fighting racism, but who is homophobic. So I think also it's an acceptance of a general openness in society, uh, which should encompass also the broader understanding of what it is to be a human being.
0: Great lessons. Thank you, Ambassador. As we close out your segment, please, could you share a few words for International Women's Day? Yes, I want to congratulate
2: all women. I would like to uh, quote, uh, like James Brown said in one of his songs, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And I think we must also think, I'm a woman and I'm proud. I'm proud as a girl, I'm proud as a grown up, and I'm proud uh, to be contributing to my society. Uh, and I think the great pride for women. Uh, which really uh, goes also to the first issue of uh, your interviews on who is performing well in fighting against COVID. It is a quality of advancing the rights of women in general. So the pride that you can either contribute through legislation or economy, but also to be a good person to the woman that you see next to you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Ambassador. That was Ambassador of Norway, Dr. Astrid Heller. Hi, this is Lyra, South African Afro-Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka. On Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. Joining us next is the ambassador of Mexico to South Africa, Angola, Botswana, Iswatini, Lesotho, Madagascar, Malawi, Mauritius, Mozambique, Namibia, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, Ambassador Ana Luisa Fahir from Mexico. Welcome to the show, Ambassador.
3: Thank you very much, Amalie. It's uh, so wonderful to be here with you today.
0: Ambassador, this is, as you know, a celebration of International Women's Day. And in this segment of the show, we'd like you to uh, tell us a little bit more about, in your perspective, what have been some of the important gains that women have achieved in recent years as a celebration of this
3: event? Thank you, Amaleya. Let me, uh, to to, uh, answer your question, let me refer to the three main moments in the feminist movements because I have been reflected very much on the different uh, stages of the movement. And today, what have we gained? Definitely, we have moved forward, but there's still a lot to do. So, we look back in history, we can see that in the 18th century, uh, terms of chance equality, freedom, and rights were shaped in reference to favorable opinions regarding women's social integration. But in the 19th century, let's say in between 1850 and 1920, the first wave of the feminist movement emerged, demanding rights from male power systems, the inclusion of women in the institutional apparatus, and clearing the path for the debate of equality. So the distinctive element in this wave was the right to vote. In Mexico, women voted for the first time in 1955. It's not that so long, if we, can, if we think about uh, what we have gained uh, at the political level. So the suffragist movement made a good progress, but was not able to undermine the patriarchal structure, the patriarchal paths, to the extent of, trans, of, of promoting a real transformation of social attitudes. So this led to the second wave, which took place between 1970 and 1990 which was marked by the struggle of sexual and reproductive rights. Among other rights, they demanded also the recognition of the economic value of domestic work and also the demand for equality in terms of wages and opportunities for men and women. The third wave of feminism, which which takes place between 1990 to date, has been marked by a criticism of the two previous waves, And why? Because cultural and social elements were not considered. This is the first time when intersectionality is part of the debate. And by this, I mean the consideration of the relevance of uh, taking into account other vulnerabilities such as race, such as, as ethnicity, as class, as sexual preference. So this is a big movement. But uh, the thing here is that uh, I definitely recognize all the gains, mainly in the political stage, uh, not that much in the economic, in the private sector. If we look at the number of women CEOs, It's not that high, it could be higher. In the political stage, we have made a good progress in the parliaments, in the Congress, but still it's just a a little less than 25%. There's still a long way to go. And I think, and I would like to highlight, the main challenge in this struggle is violence against women and girls. I think if uh, this crime doesn't stop, if we don't put an end to this terrible crime, we cannot talk about equality. We cannot say that we have reached the goal. And actually President Ramaphosa has called it the second pandemics, the violence against women, because let's say the, the transference of the public space to the private space. So before we had this separation between the public space, the office, the school, and then this is part now of the private space. So before, yes, um, inequality existed or problems in the family, but then now it's exacerbated. Everything is intensified.
0: You're completely right. Turning towards more of a a leadership dynamic, I thought that the theme of this year was very pertinent of women in leadership, achieving an equal future in a COVID-19 world. As a female leader, you represent Mexico abroad in, I mean, I I look at the list of countries that you're responsible for from Africa, and I think it's almost half the continent. But nonetheless, what are some of the leadership strategies that you found to be most effective?
3: Well, um, let me divide the answer into two. One is uh, what happens inside my office in a broad sense of the, of the world. And then the outside world, what is a, a leading role in the outside world? So inside my office, I think that a leading by the example is very important. Using an inclusive language, using also a cross-cutting a, a gender approach in every single action that we undertake. The other thing is to incorporate women, more women, to the team. If I have the opportunity to hire a woman or a man, I would choose the women in the first place. Obviously, I will consider her capacity, but I think in certain moments, quotas, affirmative actions are definitely needed. So the other thing is uh, lead in an inclusive mode. I think inclusion is so important because this is the opposite of exclusion and we have been excluded for so many years for decades so now i mean if you're a leader you have to lead in an inclusive mode make your team feel like part that like they are part of the discussions that are they are part of the decision making and then you empower your team your women in the team my team is 70% women and i'm so happy and so Proud of every single woman. This is a diverse composition. We are women from all over. I mean, in, and uh, and and we really, uh, I really incorporate them all the time in our discussions, in our conversations, and this empowers them to really uh, feel more secure of themselves, to dare to speak, to raise their voices. And the other thing is, lead with a critical awareness and with a sustainable perspective having this critical awareness all the time and with a sustainable perspective. I think this is key. In order to really reach out the the goals, but in a sustainable mode, because if not, it it would be just conjuncture. It's celebrating the, the International Women's Day, yes, on the 8th, or in the case of South Africa, celebrating in August, the whole month. But if we don't commit to a critical awareness and sustainable perspective, it will be harder for us to, to reach the goal of uh, uh, gender equality. And in the outside world, I would say that uh, I really take every single opportunity to join a discussion, to join a group of, of women, to bring more women to those spaces to discuss and obviously men are welcome. And there are few men that are approaching those spaces and this is obviously very welcoming. I do the same in my office. I talk to men, I invite them, we invite them to incorporate to these discussions because it's not just a women discussion or a women commitment. We have to to have men on board. So, but I take every single opportunity uh, to participate in a discussion, to contribute with good practices in my country, for instance, to reflect, and to, to, to make proportions contributions toward gender equality.
0: Staying with, let's say, the, the Mexican agenda and, and viewpoint, I understand that very recently there is a, an announcement of the, the feminist foreign policy, which is the first in Latin America. Please tell us more about that, how it came about, and what it aims to achieve.
3: Sure. Thank you, Amalia, for this question. I think it's very important and very pertinent. In uh, January uh, 2020, uh, the government of Mexico launched this uh, feminist foreign policy. This is the first uh, f- feminist foreign policy in the global south, actually. There are feminist foreign policy in, 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 in Sweden, they they were the first and then Canada and France and and other countries in Europe, but in Latin America and particularly in the global South, I would say this is the first feminist foreign policy with particular elements such as intersectionality. We have learned from the past, we have learned from all these feminist movements and we incorporated these categories into this feminist uh, foreign policy. So it's a set of principles from the foreign policy perspective, to guide government actions to reach gender equality, to make a a more prosperous society, more equal society. So we are committed to do this. And at the level of the foreign ministry, we are making uh, visible equality. It's not just that equality exists. No, it's visible. You can see equality going on. And obviously, uh, fighting for a, for a ministry free of violence against women and girls. This is at the core of the feminist foreign policy as well. And obviously, in the terrain of uh, the multilateral fora, it's bringing women to be part of the delegations, to be part of the decision-making processes, to, be, to, to play an active role in whatever happens, in whatever discussion takes place. So we are not allowing fora with, with no women, for instance. If there is a fora with no women, there's a boycott, you know? And, and social media helps a lot into that, eh, with that. So we immediately have this eye that, okay, just men, forget it, we are not part of that. So it's empowering um, women at the political level, but also the economic level uh, in, in their rural areas as well, their participation in politics as well. So it's a, a whole movement. So we have to be consistent at the national level because that's the hardest. We can be as, as coherent in the multilateral forum, but if you are not consistent at the national level, This is lost. So this uh, for a feminist foreign policy, the, the idea is that every single secretary in the cabinet, and then from there downwards, we have to abide by this feminist foreign policy in order to be consistent.
0: Thank you very much for sharing. And I wish you and the country all the best as that policy becomes implemented. And hopefully it serves as a motivator for other countries in Latin America and the greater global South to follow through with with like thinking. Exactly. Hopefully, yes. Can you please use this platform to tell us about one or two significant women from Mexico?
3: Sure. Uh, When I was thinking about it, I I it was very difficult to choose, but I chose two women that are really, that have not been recognized as they should. Uh, we don't know them. I mean, they are not a public person such as Frida or the artists who are much more visible. These women are not visible. So a, a very good thing is to give visibility to two to very powerful, powerful women. One is Leona Vicario, who was um, a journalist And she participated in the movement for independence from Spain. This this happened in 19th century, in 1810. She came from a very wealthy family and she used her money because he believed in freedom. So she was part of the movement of independence, uh, giving money to the insurgent movement and also weapons. She was in prison and uh, (laughs) a a very indicative uh, Moment in her life was when Lucas Alaman, she was a he he was a politician, a conservative politician and a writer, wrote her a letter saying that, I mean, like diminishing her participation in the movement, saying that, well, he thought that this uh, heroism was a romantic heroism. She was following love, no? So uh, Leona Vicario said uh, in a very well written letter, very, very, pretty straightforward. She said, you know what, Mr. Lucas Alaman, love is not always the mobile for women's action. I'm free to choose. And I decided to help the movement, to be part of the movement, because I believe in the freedom of my country. And I followed a struggle very patriotically. I'm a patriot. So I mean, obviously, <laughs> no more was written and said because she was pretty straightforward and clear. And the other women, the woman that I really admire a lot is the first uh, ambassador of Mexico to several countries. Uh, she was a diplomat. Uh, she's Amalia Gonzalez Caballero. She can be considered the woman with the greatest political power in the mid 20th century. She was a diplomat. She was a writer. She was a member of the uh, president cabinet and she was an ambassador to Colombia, to the United Nations, to Switzerland, to Austria. She was really very powerful. She was instrumental in getting the vote for women, the right to vote for women. So she, she was a a, a character and, and she's not visible at all. So now we are recuperating these women diplomat. She also wrote uh, theater pieces and uh, some essays talking about things that were taboo at that time. These two women, eh, I chose them because they are not visible as they should, but they played a very, very important role to make us be where we are. Like me being here, she definitely breached the gap for us to move forward.
0: And lastly, as we close out with our segment today, in honor of International Women's Day, please um, share a few words of, of inspiration or um, wisdom that you'd like to convey.
3: Absolutely. Well, I would say, uh, as uh, I, I said uh, in my first uh, interview with you, uh, I think a year and a half, sit at the table. I would Tell women and girls, sit at the table, raise your voices, look for mentors and mentor other women. Make the battles for gender equality yours. Feel a sense of appropriation of the movement for a world free of violence against women and girls. Contribute to a change of mindset, influence the mindsets of others and break the patriarchal pacts, the patriarchal structures. I would convey this message to all women and girls in the world, worldwide.
0: That's a great message, wise words to live by and put into practice. That was Ambassador Ana Luisa Faria from Mexico.